Hi, Sarah. Hi, Allison. So it's December, the first Spotlight on France episode of December. That means Christmas is coming. The streets here in Paris are already decorated with lights. Champs-Élysées, of course, is sparkling. It's all red this year. Mm. Uh, stores have got their trees out. Yeah, and there are Christmas markets sprouting up everywhere. Strasbourg in eastern France is maybe the epicenter, well, let's say, of the Christmas market extravaganza. And that's where I went this week. Christmas markets in Strasbourg are an institution. All over the city, you turn a corner, you see a cluster of wooden huts selling all kinds of things. Christmas decorations and ornaments, Alsatian treats. Everything smells like hot chocolate and mulled wine. In the center of town, at Place Clébert, a Christmas tree reaches higher than the four-story buildings around it. Around the corner, there's a toy store, also decorated for Christmas. I go in with Joy Fluto, and the first thing we see is a shelf with electronics for kids. Yeah. What do we have here? We have a, a photography toy, cameras in blue and pink. It's the exact same toys. Here, a girl in the packaging on the pink one, and a boy on the blue one. You also have a smartphone for kids, toys, smartphone. The pink and the normal one, because it's not blue, but black. For a girl, you need a, a pink one. Of course. <laughs> All right, so now we're, we're, okay, fine, that's electronic stuff, that's for older kids. What about, like, littler kids here? So here we're going into the left side of the store. Yeah. And everything is pink, and it's all dolls. Dolls, all uh, in the pink box. Yeah, there's really nothing packaged here, well, saying, packaging, this is for a boy. Yeah, even uh, the picture on the boxes, this is uh, a girl. And then here is the boys. Yeah. Um, in the boys section, cows, a lot of cows. This is a kind of market research for Fluto because she's about to open her own store down the street, but it'll be different. No pink and blue separations, no dolls and cars in different areas. Joy Concept will be a gender-neutral toy and clothing store. We go over to the store, which is still under construction. You all in my store. Right now, there's drywall and wires hanging everywhere. But what will we see when we come into this store? Uh, you will see clothes, books, and uh, toys, dolls, cars, construction um, sets, all the kind of toys you can find in another store. But here, the packaging are different and uh, show differently uh, in the same space. No boys and, and girls uh, stereotypes. You have uh, some dolls, but not in a pink box or with a, a picture of a girl playing uh, with the doll. So just a doll. How did Fluto get to this point of opening a gender-neutral toy store? She's 27, doesn't have her own kids, but she's gone through a process of realizing that gender stereotypes start with toys and clothes. She went to school for marketing. In marketing, the first thing you learn is you need to separate your clients, and the first thing you can separate clients is the sex. And after that, you have all the stereotypes Women are soft uh, and everything, but I'm not like this. But I'm a woman, 
so there is a problem. She went through a kind of transformation, conversations about gender roles, reading about feminism. During her degree, she also learned through internships that she didn't like working for others. She wanted to open her own business. So when she was searching for what that could be, she remembered a class. I did an exercise on the gender marketing on kids. And I thought that, uh, wow, it's crazy. I didn't know there is some brands like um, uh, Baby Clothes. You have uh, the pink one with uh, Pretty and all this kind of thing uh, on the shirt. And the blue shirt with Courageous, Strong. I discovered that the company that sells pink thing and uh, blue things, you actually sell more because um, I like the example of uh, the bikes, because uh, you have a, a pink bike for your daughter, and after that you have a, a little boy, but the little boy will say, oh, no, no, it's a girl bike. No, it's a bike. <laughs> so uh, the company sell actually more, but here I want to sell less, but sell better, uh, with better fabrics. If you buy a gender-neutral quality shirt, you can keep it and uh, give it to the boys or the girls, all the other kids that you have in the family. She realized this could be a good plan, a business with a mission she could get behind. Strasbourg is a good place to start, as there are people here interested in alternative ways of consuming, buying food directly from producers, looking for local products. Why not toys and clothes that address gender stereotypes? And Fluto says that mentalities are ready for this. People have changed their ideas about gender even over the last two years in France after the Me Too movement. Before that, everyone uh, tells me that I'm crazy, uh, uh, that will not work. Clients want pink uh, thing, a blue thing. But after this movement, the society changes a little uh, step by step people uh, starting to see the sexism. There is evolution, but there is a ways to go. As much positive feedback that she's gotten on social media, she's also gotten pushback. A person t tells me that, okay, the next step is to remove genitals uh, from kids. Uh, no, <laughs> no, 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 no. I just want to don't put kids in the box because of their genitals. I, I want option in this store because a girl who wants a car here, she can because the car is just here in front of the dresses and everything. For a boy who wants a doll, it's an option. What does gender neutral clothing look like? It's comfortable because uh, kids are constantly moving and um, you need to know that girls' clothes are the same age as boys. Their clothes are tighter. So it's more difficult for a girl to run because of the, the clothes. So the clothes will be comfortable with great colors. When I tell people that I want to open a genderless store with clothing, they were like, oh, okay, you will have uh, green stuff. What? <laughs> uh, because green is seen as the neutral color. Yeah, I think. Um, and um, there were like, oh, you will have um, dungaree. So, yeah, the, the, there were... You mean like not dresses and not... Not dresses, not pants. Uh, but that's not true. Not, that's not true because I will have dress. A lot of brands that want a gender neutral collection, it's just a men collection. And that's not gender neutral. Gender-neutral clothing are not boys' clothing. 
Can a boy wear pink? Yeah, I think a boy who likes pink, he can wear it, of course. It will be somehow more difficult for him because at school or in a grocery store, they have people who <laughs> don't like it and uh, say it, even to the kids. So it's not very easy for a boy to wear pink now. But I think we need to, in the beginning, have gender-neutral product who lead to open-minded people. And after that, boys uh, could uh, wear pink. So the idea is clearly not to de-sex children, as it were, but it's about giving them choices. I can imagine some parents buying into this. I think I do, personally. But France still remains a very gender-based country. Yeah, it? yeah. Men are seen as men, women as women, and there are the clothes and the accessories and the makeup to go with it. So there's definitely a ways to go to get to a point where, for example, um, people, parents and teachers, I'd say, might accept a boy coming to school in a dress, even in the more liberal parts of big cities. I mean, this happens elsewhere in the world. In France, I think it's going to take a while. Although Joy, of course, is hoping that this store is a start, at least in shifting the way people see things, to allow kids to make those decisions on their own. So, talking of Christmas, Sarah, or should we say les fêtes de fin d'année, the end of year holidays here in secular France, after all. Uh, some people are definitely not comfortable with mentioning the word Christ. Um, state schools, in particular, which are a bedrock of secularism, or laïcité, as it's called here, don't do nativity plays, for example, or anything, in fact, that's related to religion. Yeah, but there are still Christmas parties. Uh, we were just alerted to ours uh, that's happening next week um, in our kids' school, though it does seem to be more about Santa Claus and Christmas trees than, than Christ. Yeah, yeah, it's very consumerist, actually, um, <laughs> if I'm honest. Um, the French state, though, became officially laïque or secular 140 years ago this week on the 9th of December 1905 the law separating church and state came into effect. It abolished the what's known as the Concordat of 1801 and it put an end to the system of recognized religions. So of course all this has its roots in the French Revolution as we've talked about before the sort of anti-clerical bent on things which led to that Concordat in 1801. Absolutely and the 1905 law proclaimed freedom of conscience and it guaranteed the freedom to practice whatever religion you choose. There was one exception though right? The law doesn't apply to Alsace, Moselle, those regions in the east of France. Yeah. The law wasn't designed to be a weapon against religion, but instead it returned all religions to the private sector and it set up state secularism in the public domain. And then, of course, a hundred years later or so, in 2004, we have the law that banned the wearing of all clothing showing your religious belief in schools, in public. This, of course, was based on this 1905 secularism law, um, and this addressed specifically the hijab or the Muslim veil. That created a lot of controversy at the time, though it's now been pretty much accepted. But what defines a public space continues to be problematic here in France. Recently, uh, we've talked about this. We had the case of a veil-wearing Muslim 
Muslim mother who was accompanying her child on a school outing. Um, and it so happened the outing was to a local council meeting. A local councillor from the far right objected, but wearing the veil was not an infringement of the law because she was not a public sector employee. Mm-hmm. And then we had the recent case of a Catholic nun who was told that she had to stop wearing religious clothing if she wanted to remain in her retirement home in France. French officials apologised and admitted that they had misinterpreted the country's laws on laïcité. I guess it shows that today, even more than 100 years after that law is passed, they're still working out the nitty-gritty details of what it actually means. Sarah, heard of dry January? I think so. Is it when you start the year without drinking for an entire month? Indeed, it comes from the UK. It began in 2013 and it encourages you to stay off the booze after what, what will have been for many people a bit of a Christmas binge. It works apparently quite well over in the UK because according to the organisers, four million people took part last year. I'm not sure though it would work that well here in France. People are pretty into their wine. And figures show that the French are the third biggest consumers of alcohol among the 36 most well-developed countries in the OECD. Um, you have to be careful not to generalise, of course. I've had several long lunches in, for example, the French countryside, beginning with an aperitif and then very good wine and finishing with a, a digestif, uh, the whole thing lasting several hours. So you've got that on the one hand. But also I've been, I've really noticed that here in Paris, for example, very often young people sitting in a cafe around the time of an aperitif, 6pm, will be drinking coffee or a soft drink. So it's also rare to see anybody He was just completely plastered drunk here in France, as you might expect on a Friday night elsewhere in the world. In the UK, don't tell me about it. Uh, (laughs) It's quite a problem, uh, binge drinking for young people. Nonetheless, here in France, more than 40,000 people died of alcohol-related diseases in 2018. And the French National Association of Prevention of Alcoholism and Addictions has been pushing for a dry January campaign here. So, okay, so are we getting ready to put down our drinks uh, next month? It was due to happen, Sarah, but then the government did a U-turn and said that they would look into it in February. Mm. Now, some of these anti-addiction groups are going it alone. They've launched their own campaign, but without government backing. So could dry January take off here? I asked some people in the bar. Do you think France can do dry January? I think to say yes would be wishful thinking. I'm not entirely sure if people are up to it yet. I think maybe not January, maybe February when it's a very short month. <laughs> Most of my friends that I've, in their 30s that I've tried have failed after 15 days. I tried once, I did a sort of dry march and I lasted 24 days. That's kind of good, right? It's three weeks, more than three weeks. We can do it. And what about family reunions? Oh my God, I would not do without wine. We come from Burgundy, and my French side comes from Burgundy. And we even have a drink for lunch, to be honest. And uh, we start very early, as 12. It's like, oh, c'est l'apéro. Do you think that France can have dry January? It's impossible for me. It's impossible <laughs> for you? No, I can't believe it. I mean, first of January without alcohol, it's, it's nonsense, I mean... Alcohol is go with 
having a party yet. I think it's possible. You know, French people are sometimes very astonishing. For example, we thought that it was impossible for French people to stop smoking, but they did it. But cigarettes are not as French as wine is French. That's right. <laughs> Would you be interested in doing having a dry January? Oh yes. It's for me. It's possible to stop uh, drinking alcohol. I think there was a real evolution in France. When I was 30, for example, because now I'm over 50, <laughs> uh, it was impossible in a party not to drink alcohol. Now. Uh, when people say, no, I don't drink alcohol, nobody said nothing. It's a possibility not to drink alcohol is uh, better understood, accepted than before. So things might be evolving, as we heard there. Yeah, that said, alcohol remains a huge business here. Uh, 12.9 billion euros were generated in turnover in 2017. So encouraging people not to buy or consume alcohol for a month a year could be seen as shooting yourself, economically speaking, in the foot. And the wine industry is obviously not very enthusiastic about this. Some health experts have suggested the government's decision not to support dry January was due to pressure from wine lobbies. So to find out a bit more about that, I reached out to Thomas Petrel, he's a journalist, and he's co-authored a book called Tournée Générale, A Round of Drinks, and he says France's relationship to alcohol tells us a lot about the way French society is evolving. All the parts of French society can be explained through the relationship with alcohol in a way, the culture, like uh, in the books, in the songs, everybody's talking about it in a way, and everybody has a relationship to it. That's why in the book we start by talking about the people who don't drink, because in a way they show that everybody has a relationship with alcohol, even the people who don't drink. They always have to explain themselves, like uh, why you don't drink, why you don't drink wine, especially why you don't drink champagne when it's like a celebration. Are you uh, sick or is it something religious? And no, there are just some people who don't want to drink. And in France, at least, they have to explain why. As you say in the book, it's in the media, in cultural life, but also in politics. And I want to pick up on this political thing because we had our current president, Emmanuel Macron, in February 2018, sort of almost boasting about his love of wine. He said, I like a, a glass of wine at lunch and dinner. So isn't he in a way supporting the French wine sector? First I need to say that it's not like that for the followers of President Macron because uh, the consumption of, uh, of wine in the parliament in France was reduced by uh, 50% ah. since uh, the new uh, deputy arrived. So people are not drinking so much at the bar of the Assemblée Nationale. And why is that? Because it's a new generation of politicians, like the average age of the politicians that were elected, it's like 10 years less than before. And, and there's also like more women, right? There are more women, and it looks like this generation is not drinking so much, at least during the day, because it's also an evolution of French society. People are not drinking for lunch anymore. Okay. And not for breakfast, because yeah. back in the day, yeah, you could also know. find some people having a small glass of, especially red wine, sure. at breakfast time. Yeah, sure, sure. So th this is an evolution. But talking about Macron in particular, I think it's a way to say, yeah, I'm supporting the wine in France, but the good wines. And I think he's saying this thinking about the impact that it can have on the economy. 
So talking about the impact that wine can have on the economy, you say in your book that alcohol is the second biggest source of revenue for France after the aeronautics industry. So clearly it is a huge economy. So the idea that France might even have, for example, a dry January seems like it might not take off here. Yeah, but that's interesting because French people are drinking less and less wine. The consumption of wine was uh, 2.5 times uh, less than 50 years ago. When we say that it's uh, very important economically, it's also because we are selling it in the United States, in China, in, uh, in places like that. But anyway, France wants still to have the image of a country where people are drinking a lot of wine. So we don't want to say, uh, look, uh, French are not drinking for one month in uh, January because it would mean that wine is an alcohol like uh, other ones. And one thing that uh, the wine industry doesn't want is to give an image of wine like uh, any other alcohol drink. They don't want it to be uh, like beer, like vodka or things like that. They want to say that it's like an art, like something that is uh, really important with food. What yeah. they call a produit du terroir. Yeah. It's a, a real product of the land. And that's what they are selling abroad, in a way. Right. So I think what the wine industry doesn't want with the dry January, it's to think that uh, wine is alcoholic drink. They want people to forget about it. There's a chapter in your book called The War of the Lobbies. So on the one hand, we have the pro-wine lobby. On the other hand, we have, if you like, the anti-addiction lobby. And we saw how those two are confronting one another over the issue of dry January and whether or not to campaign for it in France. Where does the balance of power lie? Is the wine lobby within Parliament that powerful? First... We need to say that in France, people have a very bad image of lobbies. You think about bribes, uh, people who will uh, arrive and pay some uh, very nice dinners to, to politicians to make them vote for uh, in their direction. It's not this in the wine uh, industry in France. There might be a bit of free wine. Yeah, probably. I think there are some wine tastings and uh, things like that, but uh, I think it stops, uh, it stops like that. And I think the point is that they don't need it because more than half of the MPs in France, they have wine in their territories. So, in a way, they, they have to defend wine because uh, it's its job, it's uh, the landscape, it's very important in the social life. So, most of the MPs, they are like, yeah, okay, we will do it because they know that it's in their interest, but it's also a little bit hard for them to deal with the health problem that is uh, true in France there is a health problem with alcohol and wine. The public health body have talked about 41,000 deaths in 2018 due to alcohol related diseases. Yeah that's it and uh, it's a little bit less than before but it's still uh, a lot uh, regarding to uh, other countries and there is no politics about it. It's not like the anti-smoking campaign. Yeah and the wine industry is trying all the time to say that it's not about wine it's about all the other alcoholic drinks. I think it's a problem. This is what you call in the book the French paradox. On the one hand, needing yeah. wine because it's such an important part of the French economy and at the same time needing to yeah, respond to concerns over public <coughs> health. So at the end of the day, where is France on this question, would you say? It's hard because this paradox is even inside the government. The health minister, she's in favor of doing the dry January, of uh, fighting the problems with alcohol. But when you talk to the agriculture minister, he's saying the opposite. 
and there is no middle ground. On one side, you have uh, the organizations that are fighting against alcohol problem. On the other side, you have the wine industry. They cannot talk to sit around the table together. And there is no logic in, in all this. I think it would be easier to have a real talk about it because people are making a living f from wine. But on the other side, wine is killing people. There are people who are alcoholic with wine. It's, it's hard to say it in France today because there will be always people like uh, Didier Guillaume, uh, Minister of Agriculture, who will say, uh, no, no, uh, people are not alcoholic with uh, wine. People are not killing themselves in the, in the car uh, with wine. It's only with beer, with uh, vodka, with this kind of alcohol. You need to find the, the balance. And now the balance is more uh, on the side of the wine industry than on the other side, I think. But uh, it can evolve. <laughs> Just uh, you need to have a state-organized debate, I think. So is that debate uh, likely to happen? It is complicated, Sarah. The wine growers will have to be reassured that this is not about saying we're going to stop you from producing wine in any way. But there was a nationwide campaign back in the spring to encourage people to cut down on their drinking. And that followed a study showing that a quarter of the French drink too much. So at least the subject has been broached. Yeah, it's being talked about. Exactly. It will take a while, I think. But the younger generation are clearly not drinking in the way that their parents did. So I think if there is going to be change in France, it's going to come from them. That's it for Spotlight on France this week. Our show this week was mixed by Nicolas Doro. Don't miss out on an episode. You can find Spotlight on France wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, write to us at spotlight.france at rfi.fr. See you next week. Bye-bye.